Welcome to Weekend at Crombies. And episode seven is all about the secret of Nim. Hello and welcome to our seventh episode of Weekend at Crombies. <laughs> Would you like to say hello, James? <laughs> as uh, as I've already discussed with you uh, off air, um, I immediately forget what I'm supposed to do when the uh, the recording button is turned on. Um, uh, I'm I'm very well. My name's James Evans, um, Esquire, uh, one half of the cultural phenomenon that is Weekend at Crombies. My name is Hugh. I'm allergic to cats. If you, uh, dear, dear listener, uh, should you hear as the uh, podcast rattles through its key points, the joyous sound of partying in the distance, it's because a drunk man and a drunk woman are sitting out in their garden next door to where I live and they are being quite loud and irritating. However, it might prove to be more interesting than the podcast. So uh, I'll, do, do I'll leave that. Do you think the evening might turn amorous? <laughs> I really, I really hope not. Uh, well, least, well, actually, if it does, if, you know. Oh, that, that was an invitation to you, James. That was referring to the couple. <laughs> no, uh, uh, if, if it does become amorous, that's fine. But, you know, take it indoors. Absolutely. And that's not a euphemism either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, go, go inside. No, OK, I can't. Uh, Withdraw just... to a concealed room. OK, not or an unconcealed room. A room with a room with four walls and a door. <laughs> Everything's a euphemism. <laughs> Why is everything a euphemism? <laughs> oh, it's just so hard right. nowadays. <laughs> given, given that this podcast is about a children's film, <laughs> let's breathe deep breaths. OK. And let's move on. We're looking at The Secret of Nim, which was brought around in, I believe, 1983, and was the debut of the Don Bluth Productions, which okay. I like, of which is, 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 is the phrase brought around? Um, <laughs> is, that, is that the technical term for someone made it? <laughs> <laughs> I think episode seven is far too late to start unpicking our, our peculiar cadences. <laughs> Uh, given that off again offline, we've uh, Hughes already done an absolutely brilliant impression of Slim Charles from The Wire, and James um, has done a passable Mavis from Coronation Street. <laughs> Maybe if you uh, make a little treat for all the listeners, or oh, sorry, for the listener at the end of the podcast, if we get a little rendition of that, perhaps. Okay. So as I said, uh, in fact, I'm correct myself. 1982 was The Aye. Secret of Nim, the debut film from Don Bluth Productions. We'll begin with The Secret of Nim. It's 1982. It's the debut Don Bluth production. Our protagonist is Mrs. Brisby, who is a uh, single mother mouse who is uh, looking after her clutch of four little mouselings. And the opening problem, which the whole narrative hangs on, is that her youngest mouse, little Timmy, has pneumonia. The family live in a cinder block in a farm field. Timmy has pneumonia and she's given medicine by a kindly mouse, Mr. Aegis, who's kind of a mad scientist mouse, and she's told, give him the medicine and keep him inside for three weeks. If he's moved, it could kill him. So this yeah, is where Mrs. Mrs. Brisby at this point has obviously searched 
long and hard for Mr. Ages. And, you know, the impression is that this hasn't been an easy journey for her, although we only see the end of the journey because it's the start of the film. Yeah, although the opening narration does mention that her husband, uh, Jonathan Brisby, has been killed, so we know that, again, being widowed is a fairly new state of affairs for her anyway. Um, So she's basically coping as best she can. The reason why moving Timmy is a problem is because this cinder block is in the middle of a field, and every spring, when the frost melts, the farmer ploughs the field. This seems to be an established pattern with the creatures in the field. They call it moving day, and everyone picks up and gets out of the field so the farmer can turn it over. However, Timmy can't be moved, so we've already got a problem, is that the... um, the boy can't be moved, but also he can't stay where he is because the tractor will chew him up. Um, yeah. You would imagine at this point, after years of this regular occurrence happening, they might just move to a I different... Know, well, you've got a nice cinder block home. You don't want to leave it. Well, that's, I suppose that's... Fair I suppose for the, the price of leaving your house for one day while a tractor chops up the field and then coming back, that's probably a price worth paying. They've, I mean, they, they've got well, quite a sweet setup. We should say the mice are sort of semi-anthropomorphic. They kind of wear clothes, yeah. like Mrs. Bisbee wears a cloak and nothing else. Um, they have sort of, you know, they drink out of acorns it's, and they use, you know, things as saucepans. So it's kind of um, anthropomorphic and kind of animal-like. But they are warned by their neighbour, Auntie Shrew, that they must leave. Um, uh, but... Uh, and also a part of the the thing that uh, that stalks the farmer's field is a, a cat called Dragon, who makes his presence known early on when he tries to eat both Madame Brisby and a friendly crow called Jeremy, who Madame Brisby saves. Vo- voiced by Dom DeLuise. Voiced by Dom DeLuise. To great comic effect, I will say. And yeah, 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 and indeed, yeah, Dom yeah. DeLuise um, was something of an unofficial mascot of the Don Bluth films because he appeared in quite a lot of them afterwards. Um, he was in many ways the John Ratzenberger of the Don Bluth productions, as John Ratzenberger is to the Pixar's. Yeah, I can't, I can't recall. I, I know Don DeLuise, but I can't recall what else he's been in. Uh, mostly Cannonball Run films. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and he, I think he was, he was kind of on the uh, the entertainment circuit in the America in the seventies and sixties and this kind of stuff. He yeah, was uh, okay. one of those contemporary people. Um, but he's got a, he's got a very characterful voice, and again, therefore, very suited for playing comedic roles. And I will say again, and Jeremy is a very funny crow. Um, he's also quite libidinous um, for a crow, mm. for, for actually for a kid's film. He's mostly obsessed with getting enough string so he can attract a lady crow in Shagger. Um, and, yeah. he, and he makes no bones about this. He, he tells Madame Brisby at every occasion that he does this, and he even tries to flirt with her a little bit, which is the mind boggles how it work. Yeah, I mean, so, so far we've established that Mrs. Brisby is a single mother who wears a cape and nothing else. Which and is overdressed for a mouse, you have to admit. That's fair enough. And Jeremy the Crow is, uh, yeah, he's undersexed, shall we say. <laughs> Jer- Jeremy wears nothing but a, a bit of string around his neck. Yeah, he's, he's quite libidinous, though, isn't he? Yeah. I should also point out as well that Auntie Shrew, who yeah. you mentioned is the neighbour who is... You know, um, war- she, you know, she's warning Mrs. Brisby about the move, and she's trying to corral the the mouse children, as it were. Yeah. She's a busybody. Yeah. She's kind of getting in the way, and she's nosy and stuff like that as well. And she, I, I, I find her quite irritating. Well, that um, she certainly presented as irritating. She she bustles into the house. She's she's shrill. She's bossy yeah. to the kids, and the kids who there were three young mice who aren't sick, who are kind of waiting for for mummy to come home. And yeah. given this is a kids' film, you'd imagine they'd be the entry points. So they're the eyes through which most children would see this. The kids don't like Auntie Shrew either. They find her either someone to tolerate or someone to openly insult. So you'd, you imagine yeah. the film is saying, you know, Auntie Shrew's a pain in the neck. However, 
very quickly, Auntie Shrew shows herself to be not only genuinely caring about the Brisby household. She 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 goes off in a half, but she actually is. She's there cancelling Madame Brisby, comforting her, and saying, "You've got to do something, or Timmy will die." So on one hand, she she's she's quite um, caring. On the other hand, she's genuinely badass. Um, in, in a scene very soon mm. afterwards, moving day is upon us, so we we get the um, before Madame Brisby has a chance even to think of what to do. The tractor gets going and is about to chop up the field. Um, Mrs. Brisby, who is shown to be not hugely courageous at this point. She'll have a go, but she's not very adept at doing things. Tries mm. to stop the tactic. She jumps on it, but doesn't know what to do. Auntie Shrew jumps on it, rips off the spark plugs, pulls out yeah. the, uh, the petrol cipher, and stops the tractor. And th- yes. um, that's what impressed me about that, is the fact that normally, in these kind of cartoons, you always get the shrill, shrewish aunt, but she doesn't normally do awesome things. And Auntie Shrew actually redeemed herself a lot by actually being quite uh, kick-ass in the whole thing. Yes, she does, actually. That's yeah. true. I saw, uh, another interesting point as well is that the t- two of the three... Uh, children mice. Oh, yes. I don't know what it's called them mice. Mice. Mouselings. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah. Well, that's the accurate word, isn't it? Um, <laughs> voiced by Shannon Doherty and Will Wheaton. Indeed. Of Star Trek fame. But yes, it is interesting. That, I mean, then the funny enough, they don't sound like Will Wheaton or Shannon Doherty. They sound like two generic American child actors. Yeah, which they were at the time. Indeed. In fairness. Yeah, they, they, they weren't putting a lot of character into that. But anyway, so uh, to get back to the point, after the tractor has been stopped, we have our kind of first warning shot that this is serious and Mad Mrs. Brisby needs to get going. Um, so the shrew tells her to go and see the great owl, um, who is literally just this scary, cobweb-covered um, fount of wisdom in the deep, dark forest. So that in itself is an odyssey for her to go to, and she gets counsel from the owl. The owl's basically saying, move move the family, or oh, I can't, well, you're stuffed then. And then the owl yeah. suddenly clocks, oh, you're Jonathan Brisby, Mrs. Jonathan <laughs> Brisby, or his wife, or his widow. And then he goes, well, if you're Jonathan Brisby's widow, um, go and see the rats. And he's just referring to these rats that live in the in the, underneath the thorn bush in the garden. Um, and Mrs. Brisby actually has no knowledge that the name of her husband is going to trigger this kind of effect on people, which is interesting. She is mm. completely in the dark, but she is then told to go and see the rats because the rats apparently have the power to move this cinder block. Um, so that's the next phase of her journey. She goes to the thorn bush, um, and we've only seen a glimpse of these rats before in silhouette. There's the, they're nicking things from the fire. They're nicking a bit of electrical yes. cable in a kind of a, a silhouette form. So we just get a hint of who they are. But she goes to their underground lair, which is a fairly terrifying thing too. It's got like a, a guard who's kind of dressed up in a World War One gas mask with an electrical spear who chases her off I, without a single I, word. I, I, I would suggest continuing the theme, perhaps dressed in some kind of sadomasochistic outfit. <laughs> but I'll just leave that there. His name's Brutus as well. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which is a fantastic name. And yeah, he's quite scary. It is. He's, he, he's, he, he, yeah. he's the guard and he's got his... Um, I don't know what that... It's not a sign, is it? I can't remember I'll what call the... it a glaive. Yeah, that's yeah, and he's uh, obviously, you know, it looks like he's genuinely trying to chop her in half, yeah. and it very close to succeeding as well. And says it without a word, and because he basically yeah. trying to say, "May I come inside? I've been told to see the rats," and he just chases off her at near death. She then meets Mister Aegis, the mouse, um, the inventor mouse she'd met before, who apparently has a way into this. He's he's known to the rats, presumably because again they share the uh, the love of inventing stuff, and he leads her down into the depths of the rats of Nim, which is this very kind of. Um, almost futuristic, kind of techno sciencey, kind of wizardry. Yes. It's a, it's a yeah. lovely setup. They uh, it's made of bits that are familiar. Like there's light bulbs and there's jars, but it's all set up in a very crazy way. So she's clearly walking into a world she has never experienced before. It's it's like you know another 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 world there, like the uh, the Mad Inventors Workshop. It's very labyrinthine as well, isn't it? It's, it's yes. a lot of, of different corners and turnings, and yeah. um, it, it it it's it, I think it's it's um, animated in a way which is quite 
evocative and atmospheric, but at the same time quite awe-inspiring as well. It yeah. looks yeah. it looks impressive. You think, well, what, what, you know, what, what is what are these creatures? Who are they? Yeah, there's a lot of matte painting, um, and again, a lot of light, a lot of you know, light and shade is used a lot. It's it's a lovely, very atmospheric journey. Upon the way, they meet the captain of the Rat Guards, whose name's Justin. He's kind of what you'd assume would be in any other film kind of a handsome hero he's he's well spoken and friendly and again tries to charm um, mrs brisby who seems very, very popular amongst every animal she encounters um <laughs> and she she leads into the um the kind of the rat council where there seems to be an, there is an argument going on a debate between two factions of the rats mm-hmm. one faction led by justin and therefore we assume the good guys want to leave the farm because they don't want to subsist off stealing electricity and this kind of stuff one factor led by Jenna, basically I think he wanted to go to war with humans. He hasn't got a, a solid plan. His plan is to not do what the good guys want to do. He, um, he's uh, And he's he's mentioned he's getting very power hungry. So there's clearly a faction in the rats themselves that's going on. But again, once once it's mentioned this is Jonathan Frisbee's wife, everyone goes hush and says, oh, well, we'll help you then. Even Jenna, who makes it very clear with his sidekick um, right off, he's doing it for his own sneaky reasons. They say we will move the Brisbee house. Um, and following that, then, Mrs. Brisby then goes to meet Nicodemus, who has voiced by Derek Jacobi. So he's, as you can imagine, he's instantly wise and, and learned. Uh, yeah. Uh, Nicodemus is this is kind of the wizened sorcerer rat who's the leader of the Rats of Nim, um, has been narrating out of sight a lot of the, the action so far. He's been watching his crystal ball. Once again, there's a lot of technology and wizardry mixed together. You don't quite know where it begins or ends. Um, it reminded me of the... Uh... Wicked Witch of the, is it the Wicked Witch of the West? He's in uh, the Wizard of Oz. The Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah, where she's looking into her crystal ball and can see um, she can see Dorothy in in Oz walking about. Uh, like so Nicodemus is able to see Mrs. through this kind of orb, this kind of mirrored orb, as it were. Yeah. And helps to direct from a almost into these situations talk to the great owl protects her there and encourages her to come to see the rats yeah well there's a counterpoint he's not actually a wicked witch all his comments are kindly ones he's saying oh jonathan your widow needs you oh if only you would come to me and i'll help you this kind of stuff very obviously a good a good guy yeah and it's at this point, this meeting, is when we learn the secret of Nim, um, because he, he does this entire exposition where he tells Mrs. Brisby what happened, why the rats are the way they are, and, um, and Jonathan's backstory, because she's obviously learning now that Jonathan wasn't just her husband and who died tragically, because we know he, she knows he was killed by the farmhouse cat dragon, um, but she doesn't know anything about that. And it turns out that um, all the rats and the mice were, were street rats who were kidnapped, taken to an animal testing place, which was NIM, NIM being the acronym for the National Institute for Mental Health, um, mm. and again experimented on, which gave these rats um, incredibly extended um, intellects and made them smart enough to escape and break out of NIM. Uh, the drawback being the, uh, they went to the air vents and all the mice got sucked down to their deaths. It's very said very explicitly and very, very <laughs> graphically. All the mice died except for Mr. Aegis and Jonathan Brisby. And it was Jonathan yes. Brisby who was small enough and agile enough to, to get through the final barrier and release all the rats. So all the rats know that without him, they would have never have escaped. So they, he clearly, they owe him everything. 
Hence the reverence. So the rats of Nim, of rats of Naukaman, gave made home in the Thornbush where they built this society. Again, Mr. Aegis uh, went his way to his inventions. Jonathan met Mrs. Brisby and settled down. So all that's explained, and it's also explained that um, the rats will help. They've got a plan. They, they, they've got these. They've got the know-how to, to make this cinder block move. But someone's going to have to drug Dragon, the farm cat, um, to keep him yes. out of the way. And this is where again, Mrs. So again I really, yeah. I really like Dragon because he's a very, he's he's a he's a very over the top lazy cat, who's very, who's also very dangerous in parts as well. There's a scene early on where he's chasing um, Jeremy the Crow and Mrs. Brigsby as um, as they went first meet, and it's quite a, it, he's 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 a character as well. Yeah, he's a genuine threat. Interesting, you mentioned him being lazy because it is mentioned that whenever the rats of Nim want to do something, and they clearly do a lot of things, they drug yeah. Dragon first. And yeah. and it is and one of the owners. You hear them just mentioned as an aside. I've never known a cat sleep so much. So Dragon is clearly being heavily sedated quite, quite yeah. a lot. <laughs> Which makes me feel a bit more sorry for him. I mean, he's a brutal, evil cat, but they clearly do, he spends his life constantly drugged. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. What's going I on. that, but you're right. Yeah, uh, yeah it's cruelty, really, isn't it? It's it's very cruel. Um, yeah, animal cruelty is a big theme in this. And poor it dragon is, doesn't it escape. Is, yeah, but, but you know they're quite they're quite happy to dish it out. <laughs> not not quite good enough to take it though, are they? <laughs> Well, there's more dishing out to come anyway. But this is the point when um, when uh, I'm using my J's now. Justin mentions that they do this. Mrs. Brisby steps up and says, "Well, I'll drag him them because clearly the hole is only big enough for a mouse to get through." Mr. Ridges is injured, so he can't do it. She will volunteer to, to drug um, Dragon, which she succeeds in doing, but is caught in the process not by Dragon, but one of the farmhouse kids who puts her in a, a bird cage because he wants to keep a mouse for a pet. So she's taken out of the picture. Meanwhile, the rats have got their pulley systems and everything ready and they are lifting the cinder block. So the rats have actually got this going within the space of an evening. Um, they, they're off, they're moving this crane and there's lots of ropes and pulleys and this is where Jenna makes his move along with his sidekick, who's never didn't catch, but he's basically the sidekick. Sullivan, Sullivan there we go, you got his yeah. name. Sullivan is a, an obese rat that hangs around the main yes. villain and is exactly what you expect from a sidekick, except he loses his nerve at the end and refuses to, to take part in Jenna's assassination, because what Jenna does is take his little sword and chop through the pulley ropes just when the cinder block is on top of Nicodemus. Gravity takes its course and Nicodemus is squashed into jelly. It's not quite as graphic as that. We don't see it, but we, we, we... He's not, you know, see, you don't see like a pulpy mess on the floor. No, you are spread that, but you are... You know, it is it is understood that, that Nicodemus is no more. It's understood yeah, that a comic book character who has until now been very kind of benevolent has been crushed to death. So that's probably enough <laughs> for, a, for a you certificate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, I would, I'm, yeah, it wouldn't have been a you if it had been crushed to jelly. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm going on a limb saying underneath that cinder block is Jelly Nicodemus. <laughs> but anyway, so so this happens, and and quite a lot of things happen at once. Actually, Mrs. Brisby has now escaped yeah. from the birdcage. In quite a clever way. She sneaks out under the water dish. Um, but while she's in the birdcage, she overhears the farmer taking a phone call from the from Nim, who have tracked down the rats to the bush and have volunteered or have said to the farmer, "We'll come and exterminate your rats for you. We'll tear up the thorn bush and kill every last one for you." And the farmer's like, "Great." Um, so she knows now that Nim is coming. So this this presence that we've already heard about has she has to warn the rats. So she goes and warns the rats that their plan to leave the thornbush isn't up for debate anymore. They've got to go. At which point Jenna takes his takes his cue to firstly I think attack um, Mrs. Brisby and gets in a sword fight with Jeremy who's defending her. But then we hear from Sullivan. Sullivan um, confesses the whole thing that uh, Jenna killed Nicodemus. Yeah, so the fight comes in earnest. I think uh, yeah Jenna mortally wounds Sullivan. He uh, 
he gets the better of uh, of Jeremy, and just as um, he's about to kill Jeremy, the the dying Sullivan flings a a dagger into Jeremy's back, into Jenna's back. Yeah, there are too, too many, many J's. There are too many J's. Anyway, <laughs> Jeremy, the, Jenna, and Justin. The bad rat is killed by the bad rat's sidekick, who also <laughs> dies. Turns out to be slightly less bad than the bad rat. Yeah, it was a good throw though. Like you could feel the fling of that stiletto as it went through the air, yeah, and, yeah, and it yeah, pinned yeah. right to his back. <laughs> Interestingly, we'll come to the fact that yeah, um, Don Bluth moved away from Disney to make this film. Jenna dies what you'd call the classic Disney death of falling from a very high thing <laughs> down. Yeah, which is how yeah. most Disney villains go. Although he does have a knife between his shoulder blades, which is uh, what you'd call the Bluth effect. Yeah, and, you know, again, for a new certificate. I don't think it's going to be this, a you nowadays. There's a lot of peril in this film. No, I don't think it's a dark moment in the film, which we'll get onto. It, yeah. it, it doesn't... I was surprised it was a you. I'll say that. It was a different time. But anyway, so where are we? So now we have... Uh, the, the bad rat has been killed. Nicodemus has also been killed. And the, the rats are kind of mourncast. To make matters even worse, there's a lot... Again, drama is piled upon drama here because the cinder block, which is now, of course, has fallen from its supports, sinks into the mud. And we do see... The children who are inside the cinder block, along with Auntie Shrew, literally struggling for their lives as the mud rises higher and higher. Mrs. Brisby is, is clinging to the last rope to, to pull them free, and it goes under. And, yeah. and um, we have to remember this. Uh, you know, Throughout all of this, the, the children are in the cinder block. They haven't been removed from the cinder block. They're still in it. Yeah. So it's quite a dangerous situation. Yeah, possibly for two reasons. One is that Timmy can't be moved. So he has to stay in the cinder block. Right. That's the whole the first thing. Yeah. The other thing is Mrs. Brisby isn't there when the rats come along. So the rats pretty much just pick up the block and get going with it. Um, yeah, they and, do. Yeah. And they, they don't even introduce themselves. There's no like, hi, we're friends of your mum. It's like the kids are now like, oh, our house is moving. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so, the, so once it sinks, yeah, it goes right into the mud and it's gone. And Mrs. Brisby is understandably heartbroken, but a very deus ex machina moment happens when a magical amulet that um, belonged to, think, to Jonathan, but Nicodemus gave to Mrs. Brisby, comes to life, is energised by the pureness of her courageous heart, and gives her, I guess, either the magical or telekinetic energy to lift mm. this cinder block out of the mud and place it in the, the lee of this stone where it'll be safe forever from the plough. Yeah, and... I'm glad, glad you mentioned the deus ex machina yeah. um, reference, actually, because uh, it's something that I wanted to talk about. It's a big one, yeah. It's a big one, yeah, it is, it's... It's industry standard Deus Ex Machina, I think. Yeah, um, but again, that pretty much wraps the film up. The next morning, we see the the Brisby family, even little Timmy, who's up and about, all very happy. Um, she mentioned the rats have moved onto Thorn Valley. Um, there's one actually particular moment I like, is when the, the little kids like, will we ever see the rats again? And Mrs. Brisby's like, oh, maybe one day. Can we go today? And I thought that is such a kid thing to ask. He's like, no, we're not <laughs> yeah. going to Legoland today. We'll go next month. It takes time to plan this. Yeah. Well, they're also like, can we go today? Well, do you not remember what happened yesterday? <laughs> can, we, can we just chill out for a while? Yeah, oh, yeah tell a kid anything. Like, can we go now? Like, I'm not going now. <laughs> that aside, um, and that's pretty much it. That's the wrap. We go, we go to the music, and that uh, concludes the uh, the adventures of well, the no, secret... You, you've, you've missed one final very, very important element oh, of the film. Oh, of course, of course, right do at tell. The, right in the end, Jeremy has managed to woo an equally clumsy female crow um who they they kind of stumble into is it like a tent <laughs> I think it? it's, a, it's a, a clump of leaves i think or tall grasses. and uh yeah it's all a it's all a bit weird yeah yeah basically so you know ev everyone's happy in the end everyone gets their um their just reward i guess in a good way i suppose yeah Jenna is dead. The Brisbys are safe. Jeremy's 
and, <laughs> getting and Jeremy's getting some. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to know Dragon, though. Dragon is is still being drugged. No, Dragon, <laughs> no the rats have gone, so Dragon is now, Dragon's living the clean life. No, he's living the clean life, yeah. He's, he's... Of course, the, okay, so if we want to follow this through, the implication is, now that Dragon is no longer being drugged, presumably he's twice as active as he ever was, and can therefore exterminate all the creatures in the field, all the, the mice and the shrews and the rabbits that have previously escaped his attention. See, what, that's a film I would like The to Secret watch. of Nim 2, The Reign of Dragon. <laughs> He should have got his own spin-off film. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like, a franchise it's like Garfield, but he never talks, he's never sarcastic, and he kills everything. That's <laughs> yeah, a Garfield exactly. I can get on board with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's it. So join us, as you've not stayed for long. Do do have a cup of tea. Probably the first one hasn't gone cold yet, which I think is, is a new one. <laughs> join us for the the second half of your first cup, when we look into... Um, the synopsis of why I chose the film, and then work into some themes and take a deep dive into The Secret of Nim. Welcome back to part two, where we look at the reasons why we chose The Secret of Nim. I will begin, I'll say why we chose, it was my choice this month, and I chose The Secret of Nim. Quite a marked difference, I think, from the previous films we have picked, but... Uh, the reason was, firstly, we hadn't looked at a cartoon yet, or an animation, and I was keen to, to pick one. I'm very fond of animations and thought, let's take a good look at one. The Secret of Nim being brought about again in uh, in 82 was uh, something of a staple of my childhood. Not being a Disney film, it tended to get shown on television quite a lot, so you, you usually catch it. Um, it was it's true, actually, because a lot of Disney films, of, even nowadays, actually, seem to be restricted to the Disney Channel or yeah. you have to go and watch it at the cinema. So you're right, even even not um, not classic Disney films, uh, you rarely see. Yeah, but the kind of what you'd call the cheaper made films did get sold to the yeah. networks, and you got to see them more. So the Secret yeah. of Nim was one of those. Also, um, the reason I chose this particular film was because again I've got a lot of affection for the Don Bluth productions. I think this again this was the first of them. There's the, the subsequent ones being things like An American Tale, The Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Um, they were almost, you know, if you watched cartoons in the 1980s and you watched new ones, it was these ones you watched. The uh, the, the Disney ones weren't getting much of a look in. It was it took to like 1989 before what they called the Disney Renaissance with The Little Mermaid and the films yes. started getting popular again. Which is not to say the the ones Sorry. before then weren't good. Again, I've, um, right. we'll come into which ones are going on at the same time as these films because I think they have a lot of time for them. But commercially, they were not good. And in fact, it was the uh, almost the lack of ambition of these of the Disney films in the late 70s that drove Don Bluth and, and others to go away and do their own films. Yeah, so what I was going to ask was, can, can you just describe a little bit about the, the kind of history of Don Bluth? Because I know that he was a Walt Disney animator at the time, in, in the late 70s. He was. Um, I think he, Don Bluth, uh, Gary Goldman and John Pomeroy, I think, are the, the three that left Disney. But essentially, there was a feeling at Disney, from what I can gather, um, that a lot of their films were now lacking in ambition. The kind of films we're talking about were Aristocats, Robin Hood, The Rescuers. Uh, not only were they... Um, Again, they, they, I like them all as films, but they're certainly not yeah. high ambitious ones. They're quite cute, quite short, yeah. quite, you know, they're, they're, they'll get a little touch all the bases, but they're not the epic Disney of, say, Sleeping Beauty. Fantasia, for example. Yeah. I mean, if you look at that, that was also, compare, yeah. But that was a commercial look, flop, too. Fantasia to the aristocrat, uh, aristocrats. I think it's more like things like Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, well, the ones yeah. that really push the envelope of what could be done. Um, yeah, whereas, in true. fact, not just the stories, but the style. Um, 
I think they switched from sort of the hand painted cells to photocopying cells or zero yes. cells. So the, the 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 animation was looking cheaper. There's quite a, a scratchy element to those 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 type of films, that, those era of Disney films, that um, makes them look, I guess, for born of a better word, cheaper. Um, they also they were reusing a lot of rotoscoped things. If you if you have an eye for what they were using, for example, the the dancing scene in Robin Hood that is just the dancing scene from Snow White with the Robin Hood characters painted on top of it and things like that. Oh, is it really? This one made Marion's dancing with the other people. It's in fact yeah. Snow White is dancing with Dopey. Ah, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so to, yeah, to my point was the Don Bluth films. I had a lot of time for a lot of interest in, and though I think. Uh, the Secret of Nim is not my favourite of them. I think Land Before Time is by far and away the, the best of the lot. I think that Land Before Time is too commercially and critically successful for a Weekend at Crombie's. It's sort of you don't need to look at it to see why it's good. It just is. Whereas The Secret of Nim, I think, is worth a closer look. It was kind of the prototype of them. It's where they found their feet. It also stuck with me because we had the uh, the the book of the, of um, the Secret of Nim from a very early child and it had the cartoon on the front so even as a child before I'd seen the film I knew what the characters were and I'd you know, completely puzzled by the yeah. book that seemed and, and to the me... book is called Mrs Frisbee is that right Mrs Frisbee and the Rats yeah. of Nim yeah it was a book that got turned into the film and the book is called Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of yeah. Nim yeah. So partly the, the, the animals called Brisbee because the makers of uh, flying plastic discs wouldn't allow them to use the name Frisbee. Oh, really? Um, yeah, they, they blocked it. So she's called Brisbee. Uh, but all I heard when I watched it as a child was Frisbee. I'd only now watching it realised, oh, she's called Brisbee. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, calling making it the secret name sounds a bit more enigmatic. And yeah, I suppose I'd still say that Mrs. Frisbee and the Rhapsody name is a more accurate title because the story is certainly Mrs. Brisbee's story. Yes. But yeah, so the novel stuck with me. I actually dug it out. I still got it in the bookcase. And this, this, you know, what I thought was a weighty tome and far too much for any six-year-old to read is a tiny little paperback, and uh, <laughs> it, it, you could read through it in an afternoon. But it, it stuck you with see, me. That, as... that is that is the value and purpose of Weekend at Crombie. It's not to blow our own trumpets a little bit, but um, to rediscover a film like The Secret of Nim, yeah. which I had seen years and years and years ago um I, you know i must have been uh, certainly in single figures i guess yeah and um i had fond memories of it from what i could remember don't didn't know anything about the books didn't didn't know it was a a, a film version of, of the books themselves but I, th- I i agree with you it's a film that very much fits into the weekend at Grombie's canon because of that because it's not a very well-known film i don't think and it no. certainly isn't very well known in the context of the Don Bluth series of films that you, you said came after that. Yeah, it, I think it was mildly commercially successful. I think it was enough to catapult them into the next film. Um, but again, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't that. I mean, if you're talking about Zeitgeist, The Land Before Time is is sort of embedded in anyone who's who's seen cartoons of that era and that kind of stuff. And maybe an American Tale yeah. is 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 uh, solid there. There's some again the whole canon dealt with some really strong themes. You're talking about you know there's the loss of of parents, there's immigration. Yeah. Um, yeah. This this too again it, it doesn't shy away from the themes it has in there. But so that was the reason I, I chose it. The, it the, secret, the secret name did just enough commercially yeah. to 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 mean that that Don Bluth was able to finance the next film, yeah. next set of films like. And I think they came out quicker too. The, the, the Secret of Nim yeah. was a long time after the uh, they left Disney to set up his own production company. Yeah. They they sort of rattle off a bit faster then, so they got a system going. I do find it ironic that he he broke he broke with Disney to to make his own way, and his first film is about a mouse. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, um, yeah. Though I also hear that again, Disney passed on the on the Secret of Nim as being too dark, um, which really? almost mm. fits exactly the pattern of Disney having a certain level of ambition in the the seventies um, and not. And not this. I mean, I don't suppose you could make a cuddly toy of Brutus, the uh, the sentry rat. Uh, so that's the reason I picked it. And 
I'll jump into initially my first take on the themes of it, mm-hmm. which was why, why sort of it scratched my my memory is that two two things that to make initially of it. Firstly, I really enjoy the fact that it's set in just you know a typical Midwest American farm, and just that alone is a microcosm of a fantasy world. That's all you need. You have the cat, you know, whose name is Dragon. So, and to a mouse's scale, he is a dragon. He is this big, terrifying presence, that, you know, that sleeps and guards. You have, you know, crossing a field is an odyssey. Finding Mr. H's, going to the Great Isle. These are all, you know, journeys mm. worthy of, you know, like a Hobbit-type adventure. You, you get to go somewhere and really face the, the peril. The Rats of Nim are this, you know, kingdom, if you like, of crazy magicians that Mrs. Brisby has to brave. And and she is very much in that mould of the the unlikely hero. So it's the entire thing in a world that, you know, as humans we wouldn't look twice at, is for the perspective of the protagonists a fantasy realm. There are things they can't explain. There are things that must be braved and overcome. There are things that are life and death. So that's the first thing. I, I like that setup. You know, the, the fantastical within the mundane. And the can other... I add to that? I, oh, I have yeah. to say I had not considered that at all in the context of the film itself. The fact that you have a very normal straightforward setting and within that setting you have an almost lord of the rings style set of protagonists and characters that have their own sense of legend and history as well so that's quite an interesting point which i hadn't considered yeah that was that was something that did stick stick with me again they they talk about you know jonathan brisby has hushed tones the rats of nim are this this you know it's like saying the emerald city Um, yeah so there was that and also coming back to the unlikely protagonist is mrs brisby herself um in many ways, she fits the trope of the the um, the fantasy hero. She you know she's ordinary. Um, she has what you'd call a mystical lineage. So there's this someone who's connected to her that has you know a that holds everyone else in awe. There's there's you know there's, there's a legacy attached to her. She has to really step up and from being what you could call like she's you know fairly resourceful and scrappy to start with. You know, she knows how to escape from the cat. She has to then go on to taking on much braver and stronger adventures as the as the, the quest goes forward and much greater and greater challenges to overcome and ends up, you know, basically being a, a superpowered superpowered creature who saves the day. I thought that's yeah. quite nice. And yet she's the most unlikely of the fantasy heroes because she's a single mum, which I can't um, mm. I can't think of any other film that does it of another cartoon that does it in that way that makes her the protagonist she's doing all the courageous stuff she's not just you know cuddling her kids she's out there fighting the bad guys but yeah uh, again that's a good point as well but i I think partly the the, the interesting about that is that mrs brisby she needs to grow as a character and she needs to grow as a person within the context of the film and if and so it, it is therefore particularly important that she is able to rescue her children is it? It's, it's 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 fundamental for the film that she does that and not That's absolutely rats, for example because if the rats yes. do it what what is the purpose of of her story yeah which is interesting because initially with with the, the first kind of the false dawn when they stop the tractor it's auntie shrew that that stops the tractor yes. she's the one she's the one that mrs brisby is strong brave enough to, to leap up and try and do something but basically can't do anything but carry on the, the hubcap because she's scared and auntie shrew is the one who takes initiative and stops the tractor so that's the the halfway mark of the film so mrs brisby has that journey to make where she ends up as the hero of the film and you're right about the rats too but it's, it's a case of if this was a, a regular film Mrs. Bisbee would be like the young farm boy whose father was yeah. the king or the knight or the whatever, and and everyone would say his name in a hush tone. In this case, it's her husband, whom 
interestingly, she knew nothing about in terms of his other life. She didn't know about um, the fact he came from Nim. She didn't know that he was still dealing with the rats of Nim. She thought he got eaten by the cat because he got unlucky, not because he was trying to drug the cat to let the rats of Nim do their thing. Um, which yeah. I think is, it sets up a very interesting character that we never really see, which is Jonathan Brisby. He's almost like... Yeah. Um, a, a kind of a retired war hero because he went through this stuff with the rats and then chose to settle down and have a family but couldn't quite leave his other life behind him. Yes, his, his absence from the film is quite marked, isn't it? Yeah. He, he, he is a character in the film, but he's a character that has absence. Yeah. And a lot, of the, a lot of the agency that Mrs. Brisby um, enacts and gains is... It's her own agency through her own, her own resourcefulness, but it's in that context that you can see that her and Jonathan would be a good match for each other yeah. because she is resourceful. She is obviously courageous. She has the capacity to be self-aware. She, is, she, she grows as a character. All of the things that we are told Jonathan was like as well, with the exception that Jonathan was... Uh, an, uh, was treated within Nim yeah. to gain these skills, to gain this kind of sense of intelligence. Whereas Mrs. Brisby, it's 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 her as a mother, I think. Yeah. It's 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 innate in her, it's instinctual. Yeah. And so all that I think makes it makes her a very unusual hero and makes the the story again a, a very interesting one to watch. Um as it goes along. I think again if we come to the voice actor, we've mentioned Dom Deloise, who I think does a great turn as as the the comic mm-hmm. sidekick. Um again, uh, we have um Derek Jacobi is the, the wise old man. The uh, the voice of Mrs. Brisby, Elizabeth Hartman, I think she hits exactly the right mark with Mrs. Brisby of someone who is stepping up to the plate, but also only just holding it together. Um, because even the fact that you know her youngest child is, is sick with pneumonia is, is probably enough to, to send her off the edge, but she knows she's got to cling on to her kind yeah. of enough grit to get through the it, adventure. It's a, Yeah, it's... She's a character, and um, the, the 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 voice actor Elizabeth Hartman does a really good job. Uh, the character itself is good, so that, therefore the, the the script is good in that context. But yeah. um, the, uh, Elizabeth Hartman does a good job in emphasising the what's the word I'm looking for? It's the kind of stress that she's under, yeah. and the fine line, I suppose, between being in control and being out of control. Yeah. And Mrs. Brisby very 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 clearly is in a very stressful situation and she she presents that so you, you know you don't, you don't you don't there is threat you feel that there is threat and she's not she's not a character that is inherently strong necessarily physically but she's certainly a character that has resolve yeah and i think see that in it she doesn't give up even though it's obviously dangerous yeah so yes, that was very good. Any thoughts for you? I've got I've got pages here to deep into. But any any observations you've got to so make about the theme? The, I mean, I was very interested about the kind of development of um, Mrs. Brisby as as a, as a character. Her character arc is quite an interesting one. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about the um, style of the filmmaking. Okay. Um, and what I what I um, thought was well, what I really liked about the film actually was the the artistry in the animation itself. Um, so what we what we get is the, the artistry in the animation is not simply in the 
way that the characters are drawn because they're drawn and this is going to sound a bit ridiculous really but i feel that they are drawn with depth and i don't necessarily mean that the film has a three-dimensional quality to it but i feel that the way that the characters interact with each other their expressions are they are yes they're anthropomorphic but there's the quality of the animation is such that there's a real i feel that there's a real connection between the characters you believe them in that context but also with the animation what i really really liked and for me this is probably the best thing about the film is the and it's probably a technical term for this but it's the backdrops um the background uh, details so they're not necessarily they're seals almost yeah like the map paintings but, there but, yeah yeah and, and they, 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 there's a lot of, there's a lot of artistry that's gone into those and you know to be honest i could watch i could watch a still from the film um quite comfortably and be in awe of the animation of it and in that context so the film itself presents um a world which as you as you say which i hadn't considered which is very fantastical and very magical in the in the realm of reality in the realm of a farm in the midwest of america um and within that context, the animation as a result is able to push that sense of fantasy through the story. So there are two particular scenes in the film which I find quite, oh, they're very evocative, but I think that they're also quite spine tingling as well. Yeah. The first one is when Mrs. Brisby um, visits the Great Owl. And the Great Owl which, uh, is, um, you know, this this very uh, enormous but also lives in a kind of like a, a, a the deepest darkest forest and uh, it's quite a scary moment you know there are big spiders there are um, spooky looking animals there's spider webs and the great owl emerges and it's quite a he's quite a character he's quite a terrifying character and there's a sense of dread because owls eat mice and so, therefore, I you don't. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't expecting Mrs. Brigsby to be eaten per se. There's always that element of danger there. Yeah, they they do acknowledge that, in fact, which I think is quite good because often when you have, you know, if a crow makes friends with a with a mouse and this kind of stuff, they they you know they all if you think that a shrew is popping around for tea, you don't know where the rules stand, but they actually acknowledge that there are predators in this world, and she's about to yeah, go and meet one of them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has to go and meet one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and she's, the, the, he's literally told. Again, um, this is in the scene preceding this. Andrew Shrew literally says, "You've got to find your courage, or Timmy will die." Um, and this is yeah. in kicking it off again. Yeah, absolutely. And the the, the second um, it's a similar kind of very atmospheric um, scene is right at the start, actually, before you really know what's going on or happening. Where you've got Nicodemus who does this kind of prologue. Um, who's writing in his diary. I'm not sure what he's doing, whether he's writing in his diary or he's writing a letter to someone about about his sorrow at Jonathan's death and the fact that um, what he's doing is he's taking this kind of magical ink out of the, the ink pot and it's sprinkling itself on the pages as he's writing. And you've obviously got Derek Jacobi's thespian um, acting throughout that process as well. But but it really sets the scene in there. And you, then you've got the, um, is it the Jerry Goldsmith? Um, Jerry Goldsmith, yeah. So you've got that, you know, very cinematic um, approach to it. It's perhaps a little bit over the top, but I think that it, it works really well. So those, those combinations, and again, for me, the point there is that the animation itself is is a character in itself. It's more than just a passive technique. Yeah. You've got you've got the you've got the paintings in the background, but you've then got the three dimensional characters who relate with with each other very well. Um, so for me, the artistry of the film is what 
works. Yeah. What I Nicodemus is the... writing in also is this, this, it's not just writing in ink. He's got this kind of golden magical lettering that's coming down too. Yeah. <laughs> what did bother me was what he's writing is not what is on the page, which kind of drove me crazy. No, he's he's oh. narrating one thing and it's kind of going on the page, but it's not. Yeah, I noticed that as well because I was thinking, well, where's he said that? Where's that <laughs> word? It did take me out of it a little bit because yeah. I was thinking, well, he said that word, but I can't see it written down anywhere. And, and there were some nice touches because on the, on the reverse side of the page where he's not writing, because he basically he writes about um, Jonathan Brisby was killed today and that's how we know that Mrs. Brisby is a widow and this kind of stuff. On the reverse mm. side of the page is something like Jenna's getting out of control and you don't know who Jenna is yeah. and you don't know who Jenna is for about an hour but um, it's a little easter egg that tells you you know watch out work out yeah I, I suppose uh, I'm not sure I've made my point clear enough there I know that we're talking about the themes of the film and animation yeah. isn't necessarily a theme it's a it's I think a, in it's animation a... you're right You're right though I think yeah, the visuals and um, yeah, the soundtrack both work very well together and I think carrying on from that they do function to create some genuine moments of peril and that's that i think that's what i mean without without that combination without that artistry i don't think that we would get a situation where the characters are you, you root for the characters in certain circumstances so the themes come through about you know strength about um family out uh, probably you know uh, cruelty against animals which is one of the key themes in the film as well but the the quality of the artistry means that those themes are front and center mm. and you can engage in the film through through watching what is effectively a, a work of art it's a, you know you could print off and hang print off a, a, a frame of the film and hang it up and it would it would have that depth to it which i think is is, is a theme is a thematic process in itself you can really see what don bluth was was doing when he left Disney in this context, because this is exactly the film that Disney should be making. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it well, well, it's it certainly got the, it, the. This is the animation that should be employed. Um, that Disney should have employed in this context as well. Um, well, I'll, t- I'll touch on that because this is an interesting point. Because I, I took a quick grab of the kind of films that were around the same time as Disney. Finally, left Disney had slowed down with their films, which might have been a reason why. Don Bluth um, got disillusioned with it because they weren't churning out that regularly. But mm. in the lead up to these kind of films, again, I said Aristocrats, Robin Hood, The Rescuers, the, the full length adventures of Winnie the Pooh, and you can see why these aren't on the same page as The Secret of Nim. Funnily Although enough, I do have a soft spot for Winnie the Pooh. It, yeah, I do like a good Pooh, yeah. The, the films that came out um, almost contemporously with um, The Secret of Nim were uh, The Fox and the Hound, which I think, yeah. uh, again, is not a. Um, an easy film about again kind of tolerance between you know you, you make friends with someone and they're from a different type that you yeah. are and you, your yeah. friendship's got to hold out there and involves you know a terrifying attack with a giant bear that could kill them um, and the black cauldron which you'll more say you know could have been made by Don Bluth it's it's uh, it, it involves like yeah it's voiced well. by John Hurt involves yeah, the black cauldron was one of my weekend at Crombie shortlists but uh, was, um, yeah. again involves an entire skeletal warriors coming to life and. Again, it's not a million miles away. Again, it um, uses matte paintings to good effect. It, it has lots of you know terrifying things in it. So it's interesting how Don Bluth left to make his own movies, and it, the few that Disney were churning out were these ones. Maybe it was the fact they made no more of them was the fact they decided to pull the plug in the animation studio. But um, can you imagine that as well? That Disney pulled the plug on the animation studio. Well, they they very many did um, much later on with when they made Princess and the Frog. They uh, they had oh. to recover the special tables they'd made to do cell animation because they'd thrown them all away. That's insane. Well, I think yeah, there is no more cell animation now. It's um it's CGI. Yeah. But I think if you get yeah. the spirit of it, it doesn't matter whether you use a brush or a, a computer. <laughs> um, 
Any other themes from your perspective with this? I, I, you know, I think well, the one we haven't touched on, actually, sorry, even though I've asked you a question there, it was a prelude for me. Answering, you know, <laughs> the, the, the issue around animal... I was about to say, you, you touched on it, the, the depiction of Nim is truly horrifying. It is, actually, yeah. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't... It doesn't um, it doesn't soften it either for for the audience. I don't think. Okay, I mean it's not explicitly. Well, you're gonna, you, 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 you to, to explain how it how it is portrayed. You get it's it's um it's a flashback narrated by Derek Jacobi. So already you've got the most the best acting, you know, giving the most gravitas in the film. Um, mm. And he talks again. He talks about it in a kind of a semi mythical way because he that's how the rats see it as a, a kind of escape from their great torment. But they do show that you know these rats get captured, they get put in cages. You see chimpanzees and beagles and rabbits in cages and he, he talks about this you get the need you see the needles get jabbed in them and he said their world exploded and you see the you yeah. know these rats and mice mutating into hyper intelligent creatures that then escape in an escape that kills half their party yeah and the, the, there's one particular scene where you see a, a, a monkey and um her um baby cowering in the corner yeah uh but, you know it is it, is quite uh it's quite moving um so there is there is it, it, I don't know whether it actually says something about animal cruelty and testing on animals or not, because, you know, it's a children's film. But presenting that, um, the escape, I think, is is quite an interesting uh, way in the film. I do have to say, and this is this, this might lead into some of the problems I have with the film as well, because um, I think it's a beautiful film. But I, don't, I don't think it's a perfect film. Yeah. Um, that that story of the rats of Nim, I would have loved to have watched. And um, I, you, you know, I, this is this is interesting. This would be my next theme. But carry on. Yeah. Well, I, I you can't blame a film for not being what you want it to be. Yeah. You know, it, it is what it is, and that's the film that was made. Um, and that's the story that it was telling. Um, but but they, but part of me, quite a large part of me, thought, what real story in here is... No, not the real story. There, there, is, a, there, is, a, there is a parallel story happening, which I think is exciting and is perhaps more morally ambiguous but perhaps isn't for the target audience that's, I really enjoy watching that that's exactly what i was going to say is one of the interesting things about the movie is there there was a parallel story the, the the film is about mrs brisby getting her kids to safety with the breeze block and utilizing whatever means she has to hand this story kind of sideswipes a greater story of yeah. the evolution of nim of, of the rats of nim society the kind of the internecine warfare that's going on, the intrigues that's happening. Yeah. Again, their their fear, great fear of Nim, how they plan to escape. They keep talking, we're going to escape to the I think the Thornfield and we'll get away. And they yeah. do escape and they create their new society. And you see a literally ten percent of that. You see a fraction of it. The characters yeah. we meet allude to it. In terms of yeah. you know the, 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 there's like these almost two parties um, in you know, in two political parties debating within the rat society and you don't see much of that you see Jenna who's keen smarmy and then he literally it says this he'll form a secret plan and he tries to kill Nicodemus and you you know Sullivan is on his side and then he's not and it all happens very quickly so it's very almost thinly sketched you, what's happening yeah. here and again yeah. Justin we assume he's a good guy because he's nice and friendly and that kind of stuff but you don't really get a sense of where Justin's position is either even though he becomes the leader of the rats and so there's you're right there's there's a whole story going on here and we skim past it 
it's not it's, it's not revealed. You, you see snippets of it as you look through the curtain, and you don't see enough of it to really get a grasp of what's happening. And uh, you, you, when you were describing it, the intercenine world of the, the the wars, the political machinations, the 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 world that the rats have developed, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm getting about that that's the film I want to watch and it's nothing against the story that actually is presented because that's the story that's presented yeah. but that story is I'd say Mrs. Brinkley's story is not as interesting yeah but it is more accessible I think that's the difference it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a good entry point it's in the same way that you know you have the Hobbit which is about one simple creature and a greater world is going on around him that he doesn't mm. inter- intersect with or understand that well he just knows it's happening and, and the, the ripples come through and that's often a way again the stories are told we you know to tell the story of the Rats of Nim would again have been a different film with a different different slant on it, and maybe again yeah. just just seeing a little bit behind the curtain makes it more interesting because again you could have had um, you know two hours of rats debating in their debating chamber about the uh, do you do you take from the humans or do you fight against them this kind of stuff. So mm. it's it's a case of what you want, but I think you're right. There's a parallel story going on. The other story may be more interesting. And I was thinking about this because I was thinking Jeremy gets a lot of screen time to not a great effect. Um, sometimes he's yeah, just yeah. goofing around. And I was thinking you could cut, you know, yeah. you could cut 10, 15 minutes worth of Jeremy material and then have more rats. But then I'm thinking yeah. kids love Jeremy. I love Jeremy when I was a kid. He's very funny. Um, he goes off to babysit the Brisbee kids and ends up tied up with string and trying to negotiate with Auntie Shrew, who thinks he's no good crow. Um, there's there's, yeah. there's, there's, there's I, comedy I, I, and it's entertaining and it's fun. And it does break up what is otherwise, you know, some unrelenting stuff. It's it's hard going for a kid. I was again thinking about the films I've just said. You know, with the Disney lighter canon, I have a small, small boys of my acquaintance still watch uh, like Robin Hood, <laughs> and they may not understand the nuances of what's going on, but they're quite happy yeah. to watch it. I would not be comfortable putting the Secret of Nim in front of a five-year-old. It, I think you're right. About eight years old is probably about right because the difference between that is you can watch, say, Robin Hood or Jungle Book and not get it all, but you'd still enjoy it. Secret yeah. of Nim, I think unless you get it and understand the story, you'll, you'll probably be a bit thrown by it. Yeah, you will be. I mean, yeah, it's not a musical. There's one song, and funny, this is the one song when she's um, when she's giving Timmy his medicine. Oh, there it is. And I, rem- right. and I, and I remember this because yeah. when I was, um, again, when I was a kid, I found that the whole thing of Timmy being sick didn't touch me at all. It's like, well, yeah, he gets sick and you get better. Mummy looks after you, whatever. Um, and I just wanted to get back to the funny crow. And now as a parent, you think, oh my God, he's got a fever. Oh my God, she's got a nip. <laughs> and I was in bits when she was when she was feeding him. I think, oh God, pull through, Timmy. And I had a very different perceptive on looking after a sick child because he suddenly... So you, you played at a sick mouse in an animated film for children but didn't shed a single tear for Bjork as she was hanged at the Dance in the Dark. Let me tell you, I, I, I don't I, understand you, Hugh. I do not understand you. I have shed many tears regarding Dancer <laughs> in the Dark. <laughs> a couple of other things about, about The Secret of Nim, which um, I, I wanted to, to highlight as yeah. um, and it's, I mean, it's slightly less thematic or structural with the film as well. There is a lot happening in this film, and this stems to the idea that there is this parallel story happening as well, which yeah. only revealed glimpses of that particular world. And um, for me, it's quite a short film. So it's about 82 minutes long, yeah. so it's, you know, it doesn't outstay its welcome. But equally, I think that there's a, there are things happen very quickly in it and very slowly at the same time. Yeah. So by that I mean the, the, the setup of the film seems to take most of the film. Yeah. Um, 
uh, which is very odd. And I think you get to about halfway through the film before um, the tractor is stopped, the day of the move. Yeah. Um, in an 82-minute film, that's not a long time, but it's halfway through the film. You've not met any of the rats by that um, this is you're, yeah. You're, 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 have you seen the Great Owl at that point? Not by that point. It's, it's the tractor um, instigates the Great Owl, and this is what I think yeah. you're writing, um, because it is that whole thing of the parallel stories. Because when she, the rats agree to help her, which they do instantaneously, um, pretty mm. much, they've got the answer. Because I, I was expecting, again from a longer film, there would be the rats would have to come and inspect the cinder block. They'd sort out a plan. They'd need to like wait a day to get their tools together. But no, they decide yeah. to help, and they're off. And it's because it, yeah, it's almost a case of getting your head around the fact that the Mrs. Brisby going up and asking the rats is the threshold she crosses, not what the rats can do, because the rats can do anything. Um, yes. And that, that's right, and it left me wrong for it too, because I was expecting, you know, there's a day of her being captured by the cat, and they've got to achieve this, and then Janet is his plan, yeah. and Nick and Elizabeth gets killed, but it's, all, it's, it's like, as soon as it's off, it's off. And yeah, I, exactly, yeah, you're yeah. right. And it kind of threw me, because I, I couldn't really do anything about the film from when I'd seen it previously, could, I was trying to figure out what does Nim mean? What is this? Yeah. And you get halfway through the film and understand the process. Other than you're seeing, you're given very, 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 very glimpses of rats as they underground. Yeah. But part of the issue with that is that that's fine because the 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 story of Mrs. Brigsby, but you don't really know where it's going as a consequence of that. What isn't what for me doesn't work as well. That again, you know about. It's about halfway through the film, where maybe even a little bit later, you're suddenly introduced to five or six other characters yeah. that aren't able really to force their way into your consciousness in the same way that, say, the original characters have with Mrs. Brigsby and Mrs. Derages and other people. But so you end up, you know, you end up with Justin and Jenna and Nicodemus, who are all suddenly they have their very truncated character arc. You have to understand the processes behind which decisions. And realistically, you've got five minutes or ten minutes to build all that up and to believe what they're doing. You know, I appreciate that it's an animation, it's a children's film in that context. But because of that, there wasn't any individual character that I would latch onto that I could say to myself, that I can... I can see that in that particular individual. It was almost like, and because of that, I think the power of Mrs. Brigsby was perhaps diluted somewhat. There was so much more happening in that second half of the film. It happens, as you say, so quickly, so much goes on. Yeah. You've effectively got about 40 minutes where she, she goes to see the great owl, she then goes to the rats, they ignore accept her, they decide to help her by moving her cinder block. Um, there's clearly something going on with political uh, processes about a plan for them to move. There are two different factions, one headed by Justin, one headed by Jenna. There is a wise old magician leader of the rats called uh, Nicodemus. Yeah. Um, they escaped from this um, uh, institute. They're, the institute's coming to get them. You think, what? Come to slow down. What? what? Yeah. <laughs> too much, too much. And um, yeah, two points that is one. I'm now very interested to read this book that I've had on my shelf for years to actually find out what the difference is. Maybe in the book, again, the rats of Nim remain enigmatic, or maybe there is that entire story fleshed out, and you get that, and they just decided to focus in on the Brisby story because it's manageable. Uh, and secondly, I guess um, it's. 
probably truer back then than it even is now is with animation you don't get to do a lot of reshoots you know in um if, if once you've committed to again both record capturing the voice acting and drawing the cells you have to tell that story so once you yeah. you see it, you can't step back and say we front loaded this. We need to get more edit material in the back end. Yeah. You kind of yeah. have to get it right in the script, and that's probably why it's again a lot of animations so at that time uh, have have kind of seem structurally imbalanced because you've basically just got to imagine seeing it and work it out. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and um, I think that then is the issue for me with the biggest problem of the film. Sorry to sound a bit negative here. I actually think it's a really, really, it's a really good film um, uh, for, for what it is, but the, the um, David Beckner at the end, I think it, it exists because there needs to be a way out of the film. Yeah, that's it. It needs yeah. to end. And it, so it, it needs to end. It needs Mrs. Oh, Brisby to save the day. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. So effectively the, the amulet that she's been given by Nicodemus and her inner um, strength and um, kind of purity, I guess, yeah. means that she has it, something magical happens and it raises the the of the mud into safety. And I, for me, I, you know, I, that is the purpose of a Deus Ex Machina. I can understand that it is supposed to be extraordinary yeah. and it's supposed to be a way out without any kind of rational objective processes against anything that's happened before. Yeah. But it was it was it was the it was the epitome of a Deus Ex Machina that I I, I just was like, What? Yeah. <laughs> what? They, okay. And, yeah. then, and then that was it. They yeah, they, they do their best to set up. They mention again they show the amulet earlier, they they show it being passed on, they try and mention yeah. that it's valuable and Jenna would want it if he has it and he sees it and he tries to take it. Um and Again, right before it happens, um, Nicodemus, at this point, is dead. Kind of Obi Wan Kenobi's his way back, and he appears in the ambulance, saying, "You know, trust your pure heart." But none of that yeah. gets around the fact that in no instance have they shown that even the rats have magical powers of this magnitude to to use right. telekinesis or whatever. Even if they just hinted at that. Um, so the fact that Mrs. Busby can trigger the magical amulet is a fantastical element. That even were this a purely fantastical fantasy film, you know, like The Black Cauldron, you'd think, hang on, shouldn't yeah. they've established the amulet could do that before then? Because like if you know they they yeah, tried to lift the, it, yeah, which has the power to to trigger it in yeah. some way. So or, it's or, yeah. So it's certainly a Hail Mary. Um, interestingly, it's a Hail Mary that finishes the the film at the right moment and the right time and the right way. It's just that it happened to be done with something that just got almost not quite thrown in there, but clearly it's problematic. Um, uh, yeah, I, and, but, uh, I suppose it's a criticism on, on one level in the sense that, that it, there could have been a bit more subtlety, I suppose. But again, at the same time, you're absolutely right. It, the, it, it was the it was essential for the film to end at that point in a way that that tied up all the loose ends that that meant that we could move on. I mean, what 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 does Deus Ex Machina mean? It's God in the machine, right? Yeah. So that is the point of it. Yeah. It is it is fundamentally intending. It's intended to be a a, a um, WTF moment. Yeah. That's the point of it. But, but if, I, if, I, if just... I could have rewritten it, and maybe this is, I'm going to say this in the book now as I improve upon this this masterpiece yeah. film. Uh, you know, what if this amulet had actually been, you know, like a button from from Nim, you know, like some kind of, you know, telekinetic, yeah. some yeah. mind control thing that that Jonathan had taken back and it had been his thing that he'd passed to Nicodemus and Nicodemus yes. had passed on to her. That then is the secret of Nim, and it gets used because yeah. it was something he'd recovered. And maybe yeah, all and this is yeah, yeah, in the text, yeah, but that, yeah. that's really good. 
I thank you. Yeah, that's still the Deus Ex Machina, but it works. Yeah, it ties in with the main theme of the plot, and it ties in with the whole Brisby family and everything like that. But at the moment, yeah, it it's does. just seen as. I mean, I didn't mind the fact that they made the rats part magical, part science, because it's implied that the rats are so now highly advanced that even their science looks like magic. They, they, they do some very cool things, like they go down into an underground water tank that then drains away in a bell jar, and this goes on. And they, like, they do some really cool stuff that you can kind of see everyday objects turn to extraordinary lengths. But, but I agree with you. That, that isn't so extraordinary, though, yeah. because... Um, well, that isn't that isn't such a leap of faith yeah. f- from the viewer's perspective, because what, whatever they're doing, then it, it yes, it's magical to a certain extent, but it's still based in yeah. the physics and chemistry yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the electricity, the lights, it's still it, it, there's still a basis in reality for it. Yeah. And that's why, again, my initial point of what I like so much about the film is it's the microcosm of a fantasy world in a farmyard. You know, the cat yeah. is the dragon, the rats are whatever. Yeah. The amulet yeah. takes that away a bit. It does turn it into a purely magical thing that even in a magical environment would turn heads. It's still, however, even in that moment where my eyes rolled <laughs> at the end, beautifully animated. As your eyes were rolling, mine were slightly misting, I will say. <laughs> she saves her babies. Her babies are, again, the baby's peril is real. They, they Literally, they're clinging on. You know, Paul Will Wheaton and Shan Doherty are, are screeching for all their might as they try and stop their siblings from drowning. And they go under. And it's under. It's not like a, they're, not, they're not on the edge of the cliff. They're in the mud. They're sunk. They're buried. And she, mummy, saves them. Yeah. I mean, I'm a dad as well. You know. <laughs> um, and I, I, I cry at everything. But I, I didn't, Dance I, with I didn't the cry even. Well, I didn't. No, I didn't. Dog. No, no I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do we have any 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 more thoughts on uh, the secret of Nim? Well, I think we've covered quite an excessive amount there for a film that's eighty-two minutes long. Um, from you? No, I think I've I've covered all I'd, I'd like to say about it. Um, I think again, I, I will mention one more thing on the the backstory of it. So I mentioned the Don Bluth productions, where again he um, he broke away to make kind of his own tales, and though I think the films of Disney didn't quite go downhill as much as it's implied. Certainly in the mm. 80s, the Don Bluth films were the ones that were much more interesting to watch. So you had The Secret of Nim, which we've dug under, An American yeah. Tale, which was again a wonderful tale of a kind of like Jewish emigres coming to America um, and trying to settle in there. Uh, Land Before Time, which I think is just a masterpiece. It might be one of the best animations I've ever seen. Um, all those go oh, to hell. I've not seen. Have oh, you well. not? Oh, well. No. I, you know, it's... I, will, I, will, I will search it out. It's too good for for Weekend at Crombies, but uh, Land Before Time, um, I'd thoroughly recommend. Um, yeah. The All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is again a fun romp of its own kind. But interestingly, mm-hmm. the, the 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 rot was starting to set in in the sense that it was becoming harder to make these films. They weren't turning as much of a profit, and the 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 initial success seemed to be waning. And the reason I'm saying this is because the the last two films of the Don Bluth studios. See, oh, the most Disneyfied you can imagine. One of which is Thumbelina, yeah. which is oh, yeah. which is as bad a Disney film as you can get. It's about a princess who has magical adventures. There's songs in it. There's funny characters, and it is absolutely abysmal. The songs are awful. I think they uh, they win Razzies for for how bad they were. Um, the characters are annoying. The uh, the just everything about it is what you'd imagine someone who was trying to ape Disney in a bad way did. Unlike the previous Don Bluth ones. Interestingly, the very last we made, Anastasia. Is kind of what a, a Don Bluth Disney princess would be like because that's I think that I think is a very lovely looking film. Um, it's mm. it is fun, it is interesting. It has songs in it, and then it has a princess in it. So it's it's more Disney than his other ones, and I don't think it made enough money. But that is almost worth worth considering. But the, these last two films are 
very Disney princess type films. And it was I felt, again, just watching it, it was almost like Don Bluth was like, okay, you want a Disney princess? Here's your Disney princess films. <laughs> you, know, you want them all, you just take them and let me make money off the Disney princess films. Um, but by this point, the original it's, studio had, had, had started making Beauty and the Beast, Built Mermaid, Aladdin, Lion yeah. King, and it started to steamroll yeah. once again. But that's what I was going to say, that the, 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 the sad thing for, for Don Bluth, I guess, really, is that he, he made... He made, what was it, four films in the 80s, all of which were of a very high standard of quality. I've not seen them all, but, mm. uh, you know, I, 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 I know their reputation. And yet um, in the 90s, the Disney um, machine, the Disney juggernaut kicked into gear again. Yeah. And they, they were the ones that ended up making the interesting films. Yeah. The, uh, the sleeping dragon only stays under for a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, uh, the, the, it, Disney left a gap in the market which Don Bluth very ably filled. And filled for a decade. I mean, you know, just four or five yeah. films across a decade is not bad for an animation turnout. And when you're a kid, that's no. that, that'll do you. Yeah. So yeah, yeah absolutely. So... And you know, we have to remember as well that it was. It, I mean, that, that must have been a big decision for Don Bluth because to leave Disney because. Um, he was the next generation of Disney animators. Disney had put their screen, yeah. put their 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 um, their uh, studio in really. Um, what, what Disney called the um, the original set of animators the, the nine old men. Is that right? Um, so yeah. the, the nine original animators um, uh, that that um, Disney had from you know 1920s onward effectively, and they were the the same animators that went through really up until the mid to late 70s. And Don Bluth, um, Gary Oldman, I can't remember the other person you mentioned. Uh, John um, Pomeroy. John Pomeroy were the the kind of next generation, and they actually they had Disney. They they owned Disney almost with you know what what was going to become. Um, that what they could deliver and they walked away from it so yeah. i mean, I mean it must rate. have been frustrating if you are in the business of, of you know um sell you know, sell animation uh for, for movies yeah. and you're yeah, in yeah. disney you think you've got it but if they're not making the kind of films or not showing the kind of ambition because again the disney we know this this was pre disney being the, the multi-billion pound industry it was you know it was having to it was having to live one film to another and each film had to make money um, and yeah. if if they decided we're going to save money by using old footage and to to doing zero, you know, cheaper animation and this kind of stuff, it must have been quite chafing for someone who wanted to be a creator and make his own mark. And you know, yeah. though it was only a handful of films, you can't deny he's made a mark. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right then, so I think that's our, our cover of uh, of Don Bluth um, and the Secret of Nim. So we will return where we will give our floating Crombie head scores and we will learn what film we'll be watching next month. Very exciting. Welcome back to the final part of episode seven of Weekend at Crombies. We have discussed at length the secret of Nim um, in in all of its um, technical glory. glory. There we go, yeah. Um, and we come to the, 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 the point of the podcast everyone looks forward to, the uh, the end, no, I guess, <laughs> the, um, where we get the scores, uh, the disembodied floating crombie heads, um, and a little bit of a reason why we've given the scores that we have. And then we, we will discuss uh, very briefly the, the, the next film that will be uh, in episode eight. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I think 
I go first. Don't Tradition I? dictates yeah. that you will you give yep. the first mark. Yep. Okay. Well, um, I think that the secret of Nim is an artistic success. I think that it is a beautifully rendered movie, um, which is uh, fantastically and uh, beautifully uh, processed. I love the movement, the body language of the characters, the way that they're drawn. They have heft. They have uh, a a weight to them, which I think really carries the figure forward. I don't think that it quite captures the magic of Disney, perhaps, although it certainly um, succeeds in emulating its tradition. I think that it's perhaps a little bit confusing and uh, there's too much going on in the, certainly the second half of the film. Um, but I think that for all that, uh, it was certainly an enjoyable experience to recapture some of the secrets of Nim. Because of that, I'll be giving it three disembodied crombie heads. That's three disembodied crombie heads. Very good. My you. turn. My turn now. What about you? Um, yeah. I. Thoroughly enjoyed rewatching it. I, I I suspect that I would, but I caught a lot more on this viewing. I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was exciting. I liked the structure of it. Again, the the, the fantastical yet mundane. I I was left wanting more to know about things like the rats, which I thought was a good thing. I was I was I was thoroughly drawn into what even the little they gave me of that was good. Um, but again, they didn't give me very much on what seemed to be a very interesting story. Uh, again, the, the plot twist did seem to be a little bit abrupt. Um, some of the audio, I thought, was uh, was was a bit wonky. They, t- they tended to to um, yeah. to, um, to try and portray depth by having a long shot with very low audio, and I struggled with just hearing that, um, yeah. which yeah. I think is a common theme quite throughout the Bombay films. But but back to this film, I thought it showed tremendous ambition. It wasn't a short story they put out; it was a novel they they converted into a movie. It wasn't an easy novel to make, you know. There's a lot going on in there, and for a first debut film, I thought it was a cracking effort. I thought I would certainly show this to to any child of a certain age and maturity. I'd happily rewatch it with them, and I think for that, I'm going to give it four floating crombie heads. Very good, very good. And I, th- I think that um, I think that the the four crombie heads that you gave there I, I i was telegraphing that in my head i was thinking to myself hugh's going to give this four i'm sure <laughs> he is it's four crombie heads all the way Absolutely. this is a, this is a hugh morgan film this is <laughs> <laughs> well now we're going to learn what a james evans film is so would you tell us uh what we'll be watching what what will you be making me watch to my delight and no doubt edification in the month of august uh, well, the month of August. So um, I have chosen a documentary okay. of sorts, um, and I say of sorts because the the film that I have chosen is um, a little bit elusive, perhaps. Um, it's called F for Fake, and it is the last film directed by Orson Welles. Um, it is a documentary or film essay about fakery and um, in the art world, in theatre and in film and how fakery um, is used to pose questions about what is real and what is not real. So it's called F for Fake 
and it's by Awesome Wells, and that will be our Weekend at Crombie's film for August. My goodness, I look forward to seeing what that make of that. <laughs> you'll, be pleased, you'll be pleased to know, Hugh, that at the very least, it is less than 90 minutes long. Oh, I like it already. <laughs> I'm, I'm genuinely interested to see this. Um I, I, we know, I almost thought we were going to have the last film that Orson Welles starred in, which was, of course, Transformers the movie, but uh, oh, that's yeah, clearly no. too commercially and critically successful to ever be a weekend at Crombie's, much oh, to my dismay. Um, I, know, I know. Well, we could maybe do a special one time. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I think the, the, I think the internet like... has thoroughly mined Transformers the movie. I think um, F for Fake probably is a little more overlooked and therefore is excellent weekend at Crombie's material. Good, good. Well, I look forward to watching it and discussing it with you. Excellent. That's our film for August. Don't all go out and hire it before we do. Uh, and uh, with that, I will bid you adieu and uh, wish you all a very happy weekend at Crombie's. And here's a shout out to uh, our listeners and especially our listeners on Instagram. Even all. Weekend at Crombie's. I think I'm, I'm, that was more Deirdre Rashid, mine, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Slim Charles. Don't matter who did what to who at this point. The fact is, we went to war.